0: All right. As you have a chance, work your way back to your spot. Hopefully, you're able to say hi to someone, or maybe get that refresher of a coffee, and and uh, just a couple of things I want to bring to our attention. Uh, we're trying something different, where I'm just put the announcements in at this point, and then we'll get into our preaching time. But. Uh, Once again, we're sponsoring a family with love baskets, and on the back wall, uh, as you're leaving out of the Welcome Center and going out the front doors again, uh, you'll see a lot of ornaments hanging on uh, that, uh, what is that called? I guess it's an informational board or something. Anyway, (laughs) what is it called? Board. On the board, (laughs) that's the official name. So uh, take an ornament, uh, go ahead and get a gift for that family. We are sponsoring a large family. Typically, uh, families get sponsored, and it's normal that you know, with families with just a couple kids typically get picked. We as a church decided to pick a family with several kids, so we're doing a large family this year. So we're asking that you would get one of those gifts, and then you just bring it back here to the church. We'll have a box in the weeks to come. You can put that gift and the ornament in that box, and, and that will go to the Love Baskets uh, to, to bless someone. The Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes due today. Hope you didn't forget. A lot of boxes have come in. If you did forget, you can go to the website and they will show you the closest place for you to take your box near you. So uh, we'll have to leave that in your lap, uh, but hopefully uh, you had an opportunity to do that. Um, we also have missionary carts. Uh, Christy Kazel has uh, done this uh, over the last several years, where those that we sponsor as missionaries that are on the field, uh, she puts cards together and she gets them stamped and ready to go. You can go to uh, over by the coffee. Uh, there's three different uh, sets there. We have three different missionaries that are on the on the field, and you can pick up a card for each of them. Write them a note of encouragement. You could send them anything in that card you would like, uh, but it's just a way to say, "Hey, we're thinking of you. We're praying for you." We want to bless you, and, and you're not forgotten. Even though we as a church support them, we, it's always nice to get those personal touches. So pick up one of those cards. It's already enveloped and, and stamped, so all you got to do is send it uh, after you fill it out. And then lastly, tonight, uh, we will have a community group uh, get-together here in the main gathering space. Myself and my wife, we are hosting a uh, just a, for anybody interested, a community group. And this one is... Going through the book, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, it's the same book that the youth are going through, and you don't need anything for tonight. Tonight's informational, and it's informal. It's just get the details and show up and get to see who's interested. We'll have the calendar. We'll have all that stuff. So 4 o'clock, is that correct? Okay, I'm looking at my wife to make sure, because that's what I wrote, but I want to make sure. Uh, 4 o'clock, we'll meet here, and typically we'd have from 4 to 4.30 would be a greeting time. And then we're going to do our uh, study from 4.30 to 6. But come tonight, get all the information and uh, get to meet some people. So if you're not in a community group and you're wanting to get into that rhythm, uh, come tonight and you can start doing that. So those are the announcements that I just want to put in front of you. Uh, Hopefully, uh, if you have any questions, uh, I answered them. If not, uh, you can go to the website or you can see see me afterwards. We're in a standalone sermon today. We just finished uh, Galatians, and as we've come through our series with uh, Pastor Tim, one of the things that stood out, uh, Andre mentioned it on one of the worship times, one of the things that stood out to me as well was he was talking about our gaze. Where's your gaze? Where do you look? Are you looking at your circumstances and kind of peeking at the Lord? Are you looking at the Lord? And at times, see your circumstances through His lens. And so, I wanted to build off of that today. And we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7. Now, I know my typical way of preaching is I'll go through a book, and we'll go chapter and verse and all that, and it can be kind of slow. And we're picking a whole narrative. So, I'm giving you the 10,000-foot flyover today. Uh, I'm going to be filling in some gaps But what we're going to be looking at is the heart of the people in this narrative. And where's their heart? Where's their gaze? How are they relating to God? And what is God doing? Because there's a lot for us there to to glean from. And so I hope that you will be blessed as we look at it. The the verse I just want to put before us as, as we get ready to start and before I pray is this. Samuel in chapter seven, Samuel says to Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So let's pray and we'll go through this narrative together. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that you, are so good. By your work on the cross, Lord Jesus, you have redeemed people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. You've removed our guilt, our shame, our sin, and you've given us your righteousness. You have made us to be born again. We are a new creation. We're not as we were. We are alive. And we're only alive in you. And Father, as we go through this passage, we ask that your Holy Spirit would just teach us, speak to our hearts, God. May we not be deceived. Show us where our gaze is off. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we worship you as you deserve. To be worshipped. May we relate to you as you have given us revelation in your word. May we know you. Not in our heads, but in our soul. May we know you. And have joy in you. And walk with you. So use this this narrative today. This history with, with Israel. Use it to transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. So, in First Samuel chapter four, we have this really interesting situation. Samuel has become uh, a prophet known to uh, the people of Israel. It says in chapter three that God has blessed him at Shiloh, and not a single one of his words falls to the ground. That means as he speaks for the Lord with that prophetic voice, it all comes to pass and he is established as a prophet over the nation. Now, we're not gonna hear from Samuel until we get to the end of this narrative. We pick up with them saying, yes, Samuel has been appointed a prophet. He is one that we trust. We listen to his voice. God is using him and helping guide us. And Samuel doesn't give any direction And in the beginning of chapter 4, it says, now they're at war with the Philistines. It says in verses 1 through 5, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Othak. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, "'Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies.'" So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. This sounds pretty awesome, right? It's like, oh, we're, we're okay. We're going to go at it now. Like, we're ready, right? So here we see Israel's at war with the Philistines, and, they, and the Philistines are at, encamped at this place called Othak, and that means fortress. That's the name of their encampment. It's the fortress. So the enemies of God are at this place. And they, the Israelites, they encamp, at Ebenezer. Now, Ebenezer means stone of help. God is our help. So they're like, we're going to go to the place where God is our help and we're going to go against the enemies of God. I mean, how can we lose? He is our help. We're at the right place. We have the right God. We are ready to go out. And they have the first path and they lose. They're defeated and they're confused. They're concerned to like, wait a minute, what, do, what, what just happened? It's like watching, you know, a lopsided NFL game and the, and the, the team, let's just say the Lions, you know, they're not supposed to win. And they trounce the other team and you're just like, what just happened? Like, did, was this a real game? Did this really happen? That's how they're feeling. They're like, what is going on? They're questioning. Like, why is the Lord, look at this, and they give it to the Lord. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why did God do this to me? Have you ever felt like that? Why did God do this to me? Why why would God allow this to happen? Or maybe, where is God? God. In the midst of this calamity, like, this shouldn't have happened. This isn't right. Where is God in this? Where the question that people often ask as well is, how can this be good? Where's the good in this? I, I don't understand. They're all confused. It exposes their heart. They're looking not at God. They're looking somewhere else. So they have this thought that they were sufficient in themselves. We can go out to battle. We can rout the Philistines. We camped at Ebenezer. We're going to get it done. Like God is our help. He is our strength. We're in, we're, they have self-confidence. You know, think of that sound of music with <laughs> where she's thinking, I have confidence and confidence, you know, that's where they are. They're like, we can do it. And so they go out, and they're routed. So then what's the answer? They say, well, let's bring the mercy seat of God. Let's bring the ark here. I mean, he's not going to let his name fall in in disrepute. He's not going to allow them to take his mercy seat. He's not going to allow his enemies to to run over him, so let's bring him into the camp. Let's bring God here from Shiloh. Let's bring the mercy seat, the ark, to us, and then we'll go out into battle. There's no way that we can lose if we do this. What are they doing? They're using God as a good luck charm. He's like their genie in the bottle. You know, like, hey, if we have the ark, how can we lose? Like, you know, we're going to do this and, they're forcing God's hand. They're putting him to the test. That's exactly what they're doing. I mean, they're, they're saying, if we bring the ark, God must work. Because there's no way he's going to let his name suffer. So they put God to the test by bringing the ark. They're not, their gaze is not on God. Their gaze is on themselves. And they're using God as a a good luck charm. They're manipulating or trying to manipulate. And you have the priests that come, the two sons of Eli. Now, in chapter 3, it's it's told us that these two priests are not good priests. These two boys are not doing their job. They're, they're taking portions of the offering for themselves. It's not supposed to be for them, the good portions of meat and food. And they're having sexual relations with with the women who are serving in the temple and they're not living moral or upright and they come with the ark from Shiloh. The two priests come and they're about their own glory. And it's very interesting to look at their names. Hophni means pugilist or fist fighter. So here you have Hophni shows up and he's a brawler by name. Like that's his character. He's like, I'm about myself. We're gonna get her, you know, he shows up. Well, then Phineas. His brother has a mouth of brass. That's what his name means. So I can just see it now. You have one that talks smack and the other one that gets in fights. That's probably you know, the, how their names kind of translate out. And I'm sure when Eli named his boys, he was not thinking, these are great names. He probably was thinking, this one contends for the Lord and he fights for God. But we see... That he's fighting in a wrong way and in this one will be the mouth of the lord and he'll give the words of god and we'll name him after Phineas, who was zealous for the things of god in the old testament you know and no he's got a mouth that is of brass these two boys show up they bring the ark with them they're thinking we're in charge this is really a big show like the priests of god are here and we have the ark and we're going to go into battle and god's going to win this battle for us and we will have this glory and all of Israel's is excited. What do they do? They have this great shout. They, ah, they shout, and it just resounds upon the earth. The Philistines hear this, and they're afraid. They're like, what is going on over there? What is happening in that camp? Like, why are they shouting? We just destroyed them in the first run. And they're over there celebrating. What's going on? And they get the report that the ark has come, and they are afraid. Why? Because they remember what God did in Egypt. They said, never has this ever happened before. They've brought God into the midst. And we know that when God worked in Egypt for them, he brought all kinds of plagues and disasters upon the Egyptians. And now they're going to come and they're going to do this to us. And they're afraid. Well, it's really interesting. So they could shrink back. But then one of their men stands up and says, guys, we have to fight. Like, these Hebrews who are our slaves, if we lose, we will be their slaves. Like we have no, to- we have to go into battle. So somebody does their William Wallace speech, gets them all you know, riled up, and the Philistines say, Okay, we're gonna fight, and we go, and they go and they fight. So the Israelites are confident and they're testing the Lord. And the Philistines are ready, they have to fight. Now, before we get to the result, um, I want to point out one thing here. There's a difference between testing the Lord and confirming something with the Lord. A lot of times people talk about putting out a fleece, right? Isn't that testing God? It's not. It's trying to get confirmation. There's times where the Lord is speaking to us. Here, God is, he's, I'm sure he's speaking to Israel, but they're not listening. Their focus, their gaze is on themselves, on their own glory, on their own strength, on their own competency, on manipulating God to do what they want. So they're not hearing. But there are times when God speaks to you and me. And we think, is that you, God? Is that really, do you really want me to do this? Is that, I'm not sure. The the idea of putting out a fleece is this. God, I need confirmation that I'm hearing you rightly so I can walk in your ways. It's not testing the Lord, but it's asking God to confirm his word, confirm to you what he is doing. So Israel is not trying to get confirmation from God. They're just trying to use God. Well, verse 10, here's how it turns out. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter For there fell of Israel, 30,000 foot soldiers. Philistines won and they take the ark. And the Israelites are fleeing each to their home. If you were confused before, you're definitely in distress now. Like what just happened? Not only did we lose, we lost the ark. We lost the mercy seat of God. We brought it from Shiloh up to here. We took it into battle and it was taken from us. The meeting place with God where he meets and atones for our sins on this seat where the offering is given, the blood is shed over that mercy seat for sins It's gone. We don't have it. They lost it. And they're greatly distressed. And so uh, a Benjaminite flees the battle, he escapes, and he runs to Shiloh to tell Eli and those who are at Shiloh what has happened. In verses 16 to 22, we read this. And the man said to Eli, I am the one who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, well, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broke and he died for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife Thessanius, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth. So she goes into premature labor from the the stress of this whole thing. I'm sorry, go back one, because I didn't finish it. And her pains came upon her. Okay. And about the time of her death, The woman attending to her said, do not be afraid for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured. And because her father-in-law and her husband, and she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So in this situation, where's their gaze? It's on their circumstance. They're looking at what just happened. They're looking at life around them. The, the winds and the waves, so to speak. And it's too much. Life can feel too much at times, can't it? We can go through some really deep, dark valleys, some really hard moments. And God never promises us an easy pathway, but he promises to be with us. He promises to help us. He promises, as David prays at times, to give us hinds feet on high places that we would not slip, that we'd be able to traverse the the hard terrain, the, the ways that are seeming impossible to go down but this daughter-in-law, her eyes are fixed on the circumstance, not on God. The circumstance is what she's gazing at. She's thinking, God can't overcome. This is too much. Like, look at all that has happened. And she gives up. She gives up in despair. She goes into premature labor and the maid who is there to help her says, hey, be encouraged. Take heart. Like, you have a son. Your, your bloodline continues. You have a son. God has blessed you, even in the midst of calamity. There is hope. There's hope for your family. There is one who has who has come, and he is healthy. And she doesn't pay attention to any of it. She doesn't hear it. She doesn't. She can't see it. And what she says is naming Ichabod which means the glory of God is departed. Talk about speaking a curse over your child. That's where her gaze is. Her gaze is on her circumstances. And they, they are just too much for her. God can't overcome these circumstances. And so she departs this life. Eli falls off of his chair. He has broken his neck. The two boys have, been killed in the battle. And you don't have to look far to see that people get caught up in their circumstances. The news this week, man, gave us a great illustration. And the illustration is this, Megan Rapineau and Kirk Cousins. Anybody read the article? The opinion article about these two athletes? No, you should be saying yes, Mike. <laughs> no. I'm pointing to Michael, not you, Allie, Michael. He's my sports guy. I was waiting for her to be like, yep, I, saw, I read it. <laughs> Megan Rapinoe is a professional soccer player for the women's U.S. soccer team. Last game of her career, she's about to retire and she's injured. And she says, this is so messed up. This disproves there's not a God. There can't be a God. Why would this happen to me? Very narcissistic very self-centered, very much like, look, like, because of who I am and how good I am at this and all that, like, and I got hurt on this last game of my career, like, there can't be a God. If there was a God, this would not have happened to me. Okay, we can all fall into that if we're not careful. God, you should have helped me. God, you should have done this for me. Like, I, why did you not, like, where are you? In her mind, She has no context, no framework for for God. So she just says, this just proves that he can't be real. The flip side, Kirk Cousins, (laughs) man's on crutches this week. And what's he doing? He's giving food to those who are less fortunate, giving hope, sharing Jesus. God is good. Yeah, I'm on crutches, but God is still good. He doesn't owe me anything, and and you see, there's a just this disparage, uh, disparagement, disparity, Just no, I'm getting the wrong word. Disparity. Thank you. Between the two, like they just see their circumstances, and they go in totally opposite directions. Where's your gaze? Is it on your circumstance or is it on God? So here, their circumstances are overwhelming. Their gaze is not on God. Well, chapter five, we see that what happens is the Philistines now have the ark. And well, they're going to take that back as, as, a, as a prize. Chapter five, verses two through five, we read this. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. So they take it into their temple, put it right next to their God. And when the people of Ashod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back up in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Well, here the Philistines take the ark to Ashdod, one of the five major cities uh, of of their land and they put it in the temple. Now, Dagon is like their God of like fish or grain. Nobody really knows exactly, He's, but he, this is the God that they, they look to and this is who they serve. This is their idol. The first morning they come in, Dagon is face down in front of the, front of the ark. That's a position of worship. It's prostrate in front of the ark of the God. And they don't think anything of it. They're like, well, that's weird. Like, I've never seen the statue fall down before. I don't know. Well, maybe, I don't know. Let's just put it back up. Like, they're not seeing what's happening in the spiritual realm here. God is over their God. He is the Lord. He has all power and authority over those territorial spirits, those dominions, and those powers that raise themselves up against Him. He is Lord over them. They are subject to him. Their God is submitted to him. Well, the second morning they come in, not only is Dagon face down or prostrate again, his head has been cut off and his hands have been cut off and they're on the threshold of the doorway. So now the priest won't step on the threshold because of this moment they're like, okay, well, well, this is weird. Like, okay, nobody steps on the threshold. This is like his head's cut off, his hands are cut off, and they're wanting to know what to do with this. They don't want to get rid of their idol. Where's your gaze? For them, it's on their idol. We honor the idol that has fallen. We honor Dagon. We We won't step on the threshold because his head and hands were here. We'll step over the threshold from now on. We're thinking about our idol. Well, what do we do with the ark? Well, because they're not getting their gaze from their idol to the living God, he brings judgment upon the land. He brings judgment upon the city of Ashdod, and the men and the young boys start having tumors break out, and they start dying. And so they're like, this is not good. Well, yeah, it's not good. But instead of getting rid of the idol, instead of getting rid of the idol of the heart, where is your gaze? Is it on your idol? What are you worshiping? What's what's first place? What are you looking to? What are you finding satisfaction in? What brings you ultimate hope? What brings you pleasure and joy? What, What are those things? If it's not God, what is it? What's the idol? They don't want to lift their gaze from the idol. They, they, they're fixated on it. And, and they're reaping calamity because of it. So what's the answer? Get rid of the ark. Like, let's get this out of here. We want to keep the idol. We got to get rid of the Lord. Well, that's what people do. <laughs> Where's your gaze? So what do they do? They send it to a, a city after city. By the time it gets to the third city, those people are like, don't bring it here. Like, you're going to kill us. Like, no, we don't want it either. Now, this is interesting because this story goes back to the Israelites, right? They hear later, and we have it written for us, that this idol fell over, its head was broken, its hands were broken. There's a deeper meaning. Like when we hear it, we think, yep, God's over. He's sovereign. But God is pointing back to something very profound. He's pointing back to Genesis 3.16. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise his head. He is pointing to the fact that he will crush the head of his enemies. Dagon is decapitated. When the Israelites hear that, They're thinking, our God has promised to crush the head of the enemy, and he has done it here without any help. Just the the furniture of the temple is present, and the presence of the Lord is there, of course. But I mean, if you're thinking about it in this sense, like there's no army, there's no people, there's no human intervention here, just God there, and he brings down the idol and he chops off the head and he's reminding the Israelites, I promised you that I would crush the head of the enemy. And in first John, Jesus says this in three verse eight, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. His hands are cut off. His hands are cut off the works of the enemy. Cut off. God is showing himself sovereign and over all things. This story says, Here is what I am doing, and I'm doing it again and again and again, and one will come, and he will ultimately put an end to it, and that is Jesus. So this should encourage us like God will crush the serpent's head, and he has in Christ at the cross, he will break his work he has with Christ at the cross. Well, we get to chapter six, because these guys now, they don't want anything to do with, with the Lord. They want to get rid of the ark. They're going to send it back. So we read this in verses seven through 12. They, they come up with this plan of how to do it. They said, Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in and and put in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. So they actually come up. Each of the Lords has a, a, a gold mouse and a gold tumor. And they put those in a box, and that's a guilt offering. Like, we don't want anything to do with you. We want to appease you. We're going to, here's an offering to the Lord, right? And they put that in a box and they put it next to the ark on the cart. And they said, and send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Really? Okay. The men did so, and they took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home, and they put the Ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors, and the cows went, look, straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along the highway lowing as they went, they turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So they follow them all the way to the border. Look, all right, I was going to put these cows on this thing. Now, if they go to the land, we're not going to direct them, but if they go to the land, then it must have been God. But if they don't, then it was just coincidence. We all got sick. I mean, that was their reasoning. And so God shows himself to the Philistines one more time as the ark is going away from them. Where's your gaze? It's still on the idols. It's still on lesser things, right? They're they're sending the Lord away. And he shows himself one more time. He goes straight away to the land of Judah, back. I did this to you. I brought this calamity. I brought this judgment. I was calling you, if you think of it this way, God was calling them to himself by saying, your idols cannot help you. Only I, the living God, can. And they stayed with the idols. So the, the men watch as it goes. They return the ark to the border of, the, of Philistia and Judah, and the men receive the ark, and they rejoice, right? Like, The ark comes back, and you're like, yes, we got it back. We got our treasure back. We got the mercy seat of God. It's come back. And they rejoice, and they kill the cows, and they destroy the cart. They put the ark on a big slab out in the field, and they build an altar, and they do a sacrifice, and they're worshiping God, and they're just rejoicing. That last, their gaze is where it should be. Nope, it's not. Verses 19 through 21, it says this, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, this is the Lord, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. They looked inside it. They decided, let's just see what's in there. And they knew they shouldn't do that. And he struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. So the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord, come down and take it up to you. And then they just left out the part that, that we were acting irreverent to the Lord. They were not honoring him. They were not respecting God. Yes, they're rejoicing and they worshiped, but they were acting irreverent. Where's your gaze? Well, it was still on themselves. They wanted to know. They wanted to see what God, what's in the ark. What's, what's. When we gather, I like to think that when we gather together, it, there's this sense of there's low hype. You know what I mean when I say that? Like we're worshiping God. We're responding to God. But we're not getting in this mode of it's about me. It's like I'm doing the worship thing and I'm doing all this and I'm at the thing. If 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 I pull your attention away from worship of God, by the way, I'm worshiping God, then I'm not acting reverent to God. I'm not honoring Him. Why? Because I'm pulling worship away from Him and directing it towards myself, attention towards myself. These men were not acting reverent to God. In various ways, we can act irreverent to God. We can do the right things. They did. They worshiped. They built the altar, and they sacrificed, and they did the right things. But they were still acting irreverent in other ways. And God doesn't doesn't want that. We are to honor him, respect him, revere him, exalt him, worship him. For he is holy. He is exalted. He is set apart. And, And so these men don 't treat him as they should, and it 's more of a revelation three sixteen type situation so because you 're lukewarm you 're neither hot nor cold i 'm about to spit you out of my mouth. This is not how you act in my presence I think there's a there 's a, a danger in feeling too comfortable in front of the Lord that we can fall into being irreverent and so We should have awe that God himself has established this return, that he orchestrated that. Nobody did this. God did this. And the Philistines bring back the ark. Like nobody had to get a a group together. Nobody had to go storm, you know, in there and, and steal the ark back in the middle of the night and all that and bring it back with rejoicing. Nothing like God himself moves and the Philistines return the ark. Like, he did this. They should be like, wow, look what God has done. But instead, they have this irreverence in their heart. And so they ask the others to come get the ark from them. And in chapter 7, that's exactly what happens. They, they send the ark uh, to Abinadab. Abinad, Abinadab. Man, my, my words... Of these Old Testament names is not working today, so they send it to this to his house, and they consecrate Eleazar to watch over it. And there's great fear about the ark at this point now that they leave it there for 20 years. And later, you'll read in history when David finally goes back to get the ark, he goes back because he watches Eleazar and the house that has watched over the ark and they do it with reverence and with the right heart and they keep their gaze in the right place and they are flourishing in the Lord. And David's like, we got to bring the ark back. That's way down the road. But right now they're like, let's just get the ark over there. (laughs) And so that's what they do. Well, now Samuel is back on the scene. Verses three through six. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if... If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherah and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all of Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So they come and Samuel calls them back, much like in Deuteronomy 12:28, when Moses says to them, he says this, that if they would follow the Lord and watch their ways, that they and their generations to come, their children's children, would be blessed. So Samuel's calling them to do the same thing. Hey, come back to the ways of God, and we will be in his favor again. We'll be blessed. Like we should be living as he has called us to live. And so he says, put away the idols, get your gaze off the idols, put away those things that have taken root in your heart. And he says, and I will pray for you. I will pray for you. And he calls them to Mizpah. It means a watchtower. This is a significant place because at Mizpah, this is where Jacob and Laban part ways. Jacob and Laban don't like each other. And they put up an altar and they say, may the Lord watch between you and me. As we go our separate ways, that if I come against you, I will be cursed. And if you come against me, you will be cursed. May, the, may God judge between us, that we do the right things. And you have to cross this place. You'll see this altar, and it will remind you that you made this promise not to harm me. And I made a promise not to harm you. So those who have gone away from God, Samuel says, let's go to Mizpah. Because God, God sees. God's watching. He's, he's over everything. He is our watchtower. He is the one watching us. So those of us who have come away, may we come back and be rejoined. So he calls them to this significant place and they repent and they confess their sins and they are getting their gaze on God. Well, you can only imagine what happens when the the Israelites gathered defenseless to worship at this place. And the Philistines hear about it, verses 7 through 12. It says this Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Beth Bethkar. Thank you. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us Mm -hmm. full circle. They encamped at Ebenezer at the very beginning. And when they encamped there, they were proud. They were self-reliant. They were looking to themselves and trying to manipulate God to their purposes. Now they're humbled and fully dependent on God, crying out, God, help us in the midst of calamity. Help us in our circumstances. God, watch over us. God confused the Philistines, the Israelites were were saved. And Ebenezer, he set up a monument. And I think for us as the bridge, we need that. We've come through some hard times and we need our gaze to be on God. And we need to say it is on you and you alone that we are dependent. And so over the next week or so, I'm asking you to pray with me. And I would like, my hope is at one of our Saturday night worship and prayer nights that we would gather, Mm -hmm. we would confess to the Lord that it is he and he alone that is the good shepherd of this church that we look to him and that we want our gaze as his people to be on him and that we would worship him there and that we would set up some sort of Ebenezer. That we would have some symbol that as we walk into this building, maybe something that sits right outside the door there, you know, maybe in the rock area or something. But as we walk in, we say, the Lord is our help. The Lord is the one we look to. The Lord is the one who is over us that we are dependent on. And as we walk through these doors, we walk here to worship him in spirit and in truth, not with our gaze on lesser things, not on our idols, not on our circumstances, but on him. So I ask that you would pray with me about that. And, and I'll bring out some more details uh, in the next week as to what I think that should look like for us. Psalm 121 is where we end. This is David, and he has this song that he sings, and it's all about his gaze. He says this: "I lift my eyes to the hills, circumstances. I lift my eyes to the hills around me, and my circumstances. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. That's where my gaze is. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven." And earth, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. He's your watchtower. He's the one watching over you. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day. So you don't have to be afraid of your circumstances in the daytime nor the moon by night. You don't have to have terror in the evening either. God is over all things who watches over you, who is your great shield and comforter. He is your help. And he says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The going out and coming in is just all your ways. In all your ways, where is your help? It is the Lord. Where is your gaze? That's my question this morning. As we worship uh, during our time of singing, I ask that you would just ask this Holy Spirit, where is my gaze? Lord, where is my gaze? If there's something you need to repent of, confess that to the Lord. And if it's something that you need prayer for, or you want prayer for, we will have people on our prayer team uh, back over here will be a couple and we have 3 people with lanyards one in the back two of four with lanyards two in the back two on the side they would love to pray for you james says that if we confess our sins one to another that the prayer of the righteous man availeth much confess those things confess those things before the lord as israel did as As a nation, do that with one another, confess those things, saying, I want my gaze in the right place. Pray for me that my heart will be turned, my gaze will be set in the right place. Our prayer team would love to pray with you or ask another brother and sister you trust. Will you pray with me? As I was searching my heart today, I know my gaze is not where it should be. Pray with me in this area that I would have my gaze set upon the Lord. And may we as a people as the bridge, may we look to Jesus as our help and may our gaze be fixed there. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage that you call us to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And so we, we confess that there are times that we have not done this. And, and God, we ask that you forgive us. And so now, Holy Spirit, as we we come to this moment of worship to exalt the name of Jesus and get our gaze for this day, this week, fixed on you, search our heart that there would be nothing in us that would move us away. May we confess those things to you. Wash us clean and we will be made as white as snow. We confess these things to you, Lord. And we, we as your people, worship you for you are worthy. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Mm-hmm. Amen. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.